this past week, um, my family was on vacation, and we went near a beach, and that was a fun thing and a good time. Uh, at the end of the trip, it came time to do some souvenir shopping, and uh, from where we stayed to the beach that we walked to, we walked past a bunch of shops, and um, I tended to go towards the cheaper shops. For some, They looked cheap. I don't know if they were cheaper, but I thought they were like cheaper just by the outward appearance of them, and so that's where I was drawn um, because that's my middle name, and so uh, we... Uh, uh, we went there, and uh, on the last night, though, I went to the next shop down, which is a nicer shop. I didn't think it was much, but then I walked inside and realized this is a nicer shop. And so I, I was struck by the difference in how the stuff next door was okay, but it was cheaply priced and also probably cheaply made. And the stuff in the nicer shop was, um, it may have come out of the same factory, but it looked more expensive. And I paid more for stuff there. And so it was a good thing, but it struck me that oftentimes in the world there is this tension and this competition between the cheaper things or the nicer things. And, and sometimes they're the same thing, but oftentimes there's a difference in what you pay for and what you get. And uh, if you go around the world, you will find that other cultures try to mimic things in America corporations and, and logos, and, and those are always funny to me, and here's a few of them that make me laugh. Um, this one, if you, we all heard of Nike shoes, there is Mikey shoes somewhere in the world that uh, someone will not have to uh, go to, maybe get sued for a copyright infringement, but, uh, or trademark infringement, uh, but so there's Mikey shoes, I don't know if they make you jump higher or not, but uh, they're available for you. If you're hungry for some coffee or thirsty for some coffee, there's Sunbucks coffee somewhere in the world that you can grab some of that. There's also the candy bar, the kicker, uh, which looks similarly like a Kit Kat. Um, if you're a video gamer, there's the Poly Station um, instead of the PlayStation. And last but not least, this is my favorite one. <clears throat> if you're looking for some computer help, there's the Microsoft Binbows, Binbows, whatever, Binbows. Anyway, but we have to say that. We'll move on to the next thing. Um, I didn't catch that, but anyway, <laughs> I think that's a computer store. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll move right along. And so, um, so we look at this, and you look at those things that there are cheap knockoffs, and there's the real, real McCoy, and we experience that in life. Um, but as we have journeyed our way through 1 Corinthians, I think that analogy fits a little bit with what Paul is trying to draw the Corinthians towards. He's trying to draw them towards the real deal, that this is what this whole Jesus and Jesus community thing is supposed to be. So it's not supposed to be divided into all these little camps like they were in the first four chapters. Um, last week, we thought we're not supposed to be tolerating flagrant sin. We're supposed to deal with that, uh, bring, that to, bring that forward, kind of make that better. Um, and today we continue with that um, in a chapter that, chapter five and six kind of go together in 1 Corinthians in a lot of ways. Um, because they kind of talk about how do we deal with sin in, in the community. Um, and so it's not necessarily a fun chapter, but it is relevant for sure um, to where we live. And so Paul is going to kind of encourage them, encourage them and, and doing that is going to encourage us forward as well um, in, in his encouragements in this letter to them. And so we're going to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today, look at all these verses. And, um, and in doing so, I'm going to kind of look at it from... Two main points, two issues that are raised. The first 10 verses or so raise one issue, and the second 10 raise another issue. And then we're, our third point is just kind of be a summary application of the whole thing. And so um, let's look at that. We're going to read the first 10 verses here under the heading of um, Our Selfish Squabbles and Attacks on One Another Harm the Reputation of Christ. That's a mouthful. But uh, really, what we're going to read here is this idea that our selfish squabbles and attacks on one another especially in the community of Christ, harm the reputation of Christ. 
Now, when I say that, this is what I'm talking about. Um, the first verse introduces this theme of what was going on that Paul writes to them about. 1 Corinthians 6, 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, what's going on there? They're, they're suing each other, basically, as Paul is saying. That they're going to courts, public courts, over issues that are probably more related to church kind of things, not necessarily church items, but just relational tensions in the church. How about that? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, how are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, before we go to the next verse, let's just kind of put some parameters around this, okay? Paul is talking about Christians that were suing each other in Corinth over trivial things, as he, he says. Um, and so we're not talking about um, serious things. We're not talking about, well, somebody killed somebody in the church, and so we should bring that to the church and we'll just deal with that here. No. So if someone kills somebody in your family and you call me, guess who we're going to call? We're going to call the police, right? Because that's, that, that's not what this is talking about. This is more business transaction kind of things. This is um, someone did a job for someone and they're not happy about it. Those kinds of things that are being, maybe have their origin in church relationships, but they're being drug into the public courts. Now, there are court TV shows that you and I can watch. Judge Judy, Judge Wapner's been one for a while. I think he's probably dead by now. I don't know. But there are those court shows that uh, you can watch. You maybe have your favorite one. Um, and so the ancient Corinth culture, of course, didn't have TV and internet to watch things like that. And so they had the real deal. They actually had viewing places where you could go to the public courts in Corinth and watch trials. And in doing so, <clears throat> uh, you could catch all the latest gossip first and foremost, but you would kind of get a feel for what was going on around town by watching uh, all the trials take place in town. Well, Christianity was very new to Corinth. It, they'd never heard of Jesus before. They had no idea what this whole Christian thing was, this whole church thing. They had no reference point to that at all. And so for many in the city of Corinth, their first exposure to Christianity was brothers and sisters in the church who were suing each other over business deals and, and things that thought their rights were getting violated or someone didn't do them right. And, and so that was their first impression. And so Paul is writing to them saying, look, the reputation of Christ is on the line here. So again, keep this in context here, right? So if there's serious things, there's abuse, there's murder, those are things that ought to be dealt with in a very legal and, and fashionable way. Um, but Paul is talking about their personal squabbles, their selfish squabbles, their attacks on each other that were really damaging the reputation of Christ in Corinth. Paul, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 2, you find the church being born on the day of Pentecost. Uh, 3,000 people are baptized and the church kicks off and, and you have this community that seems to develop. And as you keep reading in Acts 3 and 4, you find this communal relationship that's based upon Christ's standard, which is love for each other. That they were, you had people selling property, you had people doing all kinds of things to serve each other in this new community. And that's the model, that's the ideal. But what you have in Corinth is a bunch of Christians who are not living by that Christ standard of, of loving each other, but instead they're just living by the Corinth standard. They're living by, well, I want my rights to be honored here. You insulted me, you didn't do something right, whatever, so I'm going to do all that I can to get, make sure I get mine, right? And so those two competing things were at work. And Paul is calling them back towards more of the Acts 2 model, the, the church model, 
the Christ standard, which is love model. And so he continues with that after he's raised this issue. I hear that you are suing each other in public courts of all places. Um, and he's just floored by this. Uh, and what you're going to read um, throughout this chapter, do you not know, um, four, five, six times. And Paul is, not, I don't think they're ignorant. I think he's referring back to, when I was with you, we talked about this, right? We had these conversations, and you're not living up to what we all call, were called to. So in verse 3, he continues, Do you not know that we are, able, we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, Paul has raised an interesting thing here that he assumes apparently when he was with them, he talked about this whole judging angels and, and judging the world kind of thing, that saints will judge the world someday. And it doesn't, he's, they know what they're talking about. We have one side of the phone, talk, phone call here. Um, it's an interesting thought. And it probably ties in with like Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus is talking to his disciples in a context of, you know what, you've given up a lot to follow me. But someday, when I sit in my kingdom, and there will be 12 thrones, and you will sit on these thrones, and you will assist me in judging and, and managing and giving places of authority over the worlds. Other places like Daniel chapter 7, other places kind of hint at that as well. And that seems to be what Paul is talking about here, that our future, our eschatology, if you want to use that big word, uh, is saying that someday you're going to be put in positions like that as, as saints in Christ, and so, if that's where you're going, that you're going to do that someday, surely, he uses the word trivial in here, surely these smaller things, with the guidance of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and, and the wisdom of God's people, surely you can navigate some of these things without embarrassing Christ in a public court setting. And so, he's inviting them, just reminding them of where they're going to remind them of what they need to be doing right now. Verse 5, he continues on, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? In other words, it doesn't have to be a whole group. You just need one wise person to help work with so many of these things. But instead, instead of working these things out, you have brother going, against, going to law, going to court against brother. You're attacking each other. And that before unbelievers. And again, it's damaging the reputation of this brand new church in the city of Corinth. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, you may win your court case, but you lost the war. You may think, oh, I got my rights, showed him. No, you've lost because the attitude behind all of that was a defeat from the beginning. And so to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul is reflecting a little bit of Jesus' words. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you know what, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, give them the other. If someone sues you for a tunic, give them two. If, they, if someone makes you walk a mile, the Romans could do that. It could make you walk, carry their pack for a mile. Well, walk two. And his whole point was overcome evil with good. And Paul is calling them to that in this situation where, yeah, maybe you feel offended. Maybe you feel uh, unrightly done. That's a word. Wrongly done. Um, But there's a bigger thing at work for you. And so he calls them to just be aware of what they're doing. Because what they were doing in their selfish squabbles and attacks on one another was harming the reputation of Christ in their community. 
And so Paul then goes on and he kind of reminds them of who they were. He's kind of looked forward and said, this is who you will be in the future. So that should affect what you are. Then he reminds them of who they were. And he kind of takes you on a tour of Corinth, the city of Corinth. We've said it was a mixture of Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas, and New York with all the culture, with all the things uh, the economics dynamics of that, the, the interpersonal relationships of all that. Um, and so he, really Paul in these next verses in 9, 10, and 11 kind of takes them where they were, where they were called out of when they responded to Christ in this Greco-Roman society and culture and the courts of Corinth. He says, this is what you're going to. This is who you used to be. And he reminds them, he goes through a list of, of 10 things here. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of of God. Let's pause there a second. That little word inherits. It's a word that if you go back to your Old Testament, Paul takes the exact same word that Moses used in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he was saying, okay, Israelite people, you're on the verge of going into this new land. And if you want to inherit it and live in it and dwell in it and keep it, here's the kind of people you have to be. And Paul uses the exact same word to say to Christians, okay, God has invited you into his kingdom if you want to move into it, and if you want to live it and keep it, here's the kind of people you need to be. And so he goes through, again, much of this, you could just picture walking through the city of Corinth. This is exactly what they would have seen. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So that's where they came from. But then he reminds them, and such were some of you. That is your testimony for some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so he comes to them and he, he just reminds them that you came out of all of this stuff, out of that culture, and you've come to a different kingdom that lives by different values and different norms and different morals. And a people who love God and to submit to his rules and ordinances will live with God in his kingdom and his, be his beloved children forever. And those who don't or won't do that will be excluded. The grace of God, as Paul is going to remind them as you walk through these next few verses, is given to us to help break the power of sin in our life and to help us to live like Jesus. The grace of God saves us from the penalty and the punishment of sin. And it progressively is saving us from the power of sin. And so we can live like Jesus, who was the ultimate obedient son. And that's what the gospel comes and gives to us, calls us to. The grace of God is not given to us to confirm us in our sin and our rebellion, to say, you know what, you're fine. It's calling us to something new. And so he uses that little phrase, do not be deceived. And that implies that someone was telling them, whether in the church or in their culture, that God will accept you into his kingdom no matter how you behave. Now, I want you to hear very clearly, very clearly here, based on these verses. God will accept you no matter what your past was. You may have come through all kinds of things, and the grace of God is enough. And he invites you, and he loves you, and he showers grace and mercy upon you. But when he gives you his grace and his spirit, it is not meant to say, that's all fine. No, that was sin and rebellion and a mess. Repentance calls me into something new. 
And that's what this, is, this chapter is all about. Paul is calling them out of what they were into something new and he's calling them to live like the washed and sanctified and justified people of God that they now are, to live up to that. And so he's calling them to something new. And so he walked through this list. Ironically, we talked about Moses and that word for um, the inheritance. Moses gave them 10 commandments. Ironically, Paul lists 10 things in this list. One of them maybe in your Bible is combined, uh, but there's 10 different things that Paul lists that says this is what this new inheritance is about. And again, these are all things relevant to where Paul was writing to. This was the city of Corinth in so many different ways. He says the sexually immoral fornicators. I think Michael looked at some of that last week. Those who chase after um, illicit sexual things. Idolaters. There was the temple of Aphrodite who was the goddess of love. And so in order to worship the Greek goddess of love, there was all kinds of sexual things attached to that. That was the culture that they lived in and they came from. Uh, Adulterers. uh, Someone who has sex with someone else's spouse. the homosexuality part of that, that went with the temple worship, that went with so much of their culture, the thievery, uh, just the dishonesty that lived among them in their culture, the greedy and the covetousness to lust after things and people that do not belong to you, the drunkards or the drunkenness. Uh, Again, the Bible doesn't really say it's a sin to drink, but it's it's a sin to be drunk. And it was known to be a drinking town, that kind of place. There were revilers who were abusive in speech or act, and, and they abused and they railed against all kinds of people and things. And there's swindlers who, people oftentimes with power, who would use that power to, to take advantage of those beneath them. And so Paul goes through all of those things, says, This is the city, this is the culture that you came out of, and you have been called to something new. Following Christ meant leaving that and coming to a new level of obedience in this kingdom of Christ that you are now living in. He says, you may have been those things in the past, but now you have been washed, and you have been justified, and you have been sanctified, and it is time to act like you are. And so sometimes it's our selfish squabbles and attacks on one another that harm the reputation of Christ. But Paul, as he reminds them of what their city and their culture and their past was all about, calls them to something new. And the second thing I want you to see, the second half of this chapter, he calls them to our sexual attitudes and habits must reflect the influence of the Holy Spirit. That not only do our, does our petty fighting and, and arguing with each other and assuming each other need to stop, but our sexual attitudes and habits must reflect the influence of the Holy Spirit. In, 10, in verses 10 through 13, Paul is going to, you're going to see, as you read through that verse, maybe your Bible has quotation marks around some of the phrases that are there. And a lot of people think that Paul is confronting various sayings, very slogans that people used um, to justify their actions. And every, we all do that. Preachers do that. Everybody does that. I could use the phrase, just do it. And that's a nice phrase. Encourage you to do a lot of good things. But we have to define what it is, right? We've got to be careful with that. Because I could use that for a really good thing. Or I could use that for really bad things. Or if it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. Well, maybe that's true. But also we realize that God cares a lot about holiness as much as happiness. And so those phrases that shape culture, shape actions, shape the way we think and and live, every culture has them. And Paul seems to confront a few of them as he reflects on this idea of our sexual attitudes and habits and how they must be shaped by the influence of the Holy Spirit. It says this in verse 12. 
All things are lawful for me is the first phrase. He'll say it twice. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so Paul raises this thing that the, that the Corinthians seem to be saying. Maybe it was someone in the church who was telling them that, or maybe it was just the culture around them that says all things are lawful for us. Um, but Paul says, well, is it helpful? Yeah, it may be fine to do that. It may be legal. It may be okay to do that. But is it helpful for you? Does it help you grow in your walk with the Lord? Does it help someone else grow in their walk for the Lord if they see you do that? Does it, does it help? What does it help you do or become? And I will not be dominated by anything. We're probably all hooked on things or addicted to things that are quite legal and fine, but they're not helpful, and they're probably dominating our lives in our minds, in our hearts. And so Paul is calling them to think in, in terms of how they approach their, their views on attitudes on sex and their habits on sex, that yeah, things, these things may be legal and lawful for you, but are they helpful and are they dominating you in your life? And then he gets to the third, the second phrase, that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And that ties into a way of thinking that's probably pretty popular even in our own culture because when we talk about what is the sexual attitude and habit of many people in our culture, the dominant philosophy of our culture is that, well, just like I have food to satisfy my stomach when I'm hungry, so I have sex to satisfy my desires when I desire that. And we just equate the two. Just like I'm hungry for food, I'm hungry for sex, and it's the same thing. I'm just, that's just a normal appetite. One commentator wrote this about this philosophy. The Corinthian position is not hard to grasp. It is completely this worldly view of life leading to a lifestyle of sexual immorality. Remember, this passage is about sexual morality, not about food. The logic is simple, even though it is erroneous. The purpose of food is to fill the stomach to meet its physical needs. The nature of the stomach is that it requires food. Its purpose is to process food. Food and the stomach are physical entities, and thus they will perish. The unspoken inference is that the Corinthians apply the very same logic to the body and its sexual design and appetites to sexual liaisons, whether it be with prostitutes in the city and the temple worship or if it's just in, in general in, in their lives. After all, he goes on to say, I hear more often than I wish to say, I'm only human. God made me a sexual being, the Corinthians reason. He made me to need sex, and so when I have sex, it is simply meeting my physical needs, just as, when I eat, just as I eat when I am hungry. And what difference does it make what I do in this body anyway, since God is going to do away with it? So there's that whole philosophical reasoning, well, it's just a need, and my body is going away anyway. It's just my soul and my spirit that matter. And they separate the two, your body over here, your spirit and soul over here. It doesn't matter what happens here because this is all going away. This is all that matters. And Paul says, no. Your body, as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15, is a seed that will be resurrected with your soul to eternal life. And so it matters greatly what you do in both of those realms. So God will preserve both. He will resurrect both. You will have a body. And so Paul is calling them to see it does matter what you do in your body. 
And he goes on to build on that, that, that case. He kind of just talks about the importance of what you do in your body in verse 14 and following. And God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise up us up by his power. So that same body, what happened to Jesus' body, mattered. What happens to your body, it matters because that's where resurrection happens. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That should not be our reasoning, our actions. It should not be our attitudes and habits. Or do you not know, in verse 16, that he who was joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And he quotes Genesis chapter 2, where we talk about on the healthy, good side of that, where marriage is about a union. But outside of that, there is still a union that takes place. It is not just two bodies. It is a soul-level connection as well. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so he's talking about, okay, what I do with my body as a Christian matters greatly because I'm part of Christ. Not just my soul, but my body is part of Christ as well. Read Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about after we're baptized, where we're baptized, we're baptized into his death and his resurrection. And then later in that chapter, I present my body as a living sacrifice, as a living instrument for God to use my hands, my head, my mouth, my body. It is an instrument for him. It is his to use and serve, to honor him. And Paul is reiterating that same idea, that my body matters, and so I need, to, I need to use it in a way that is honoring to him, that is under the influence and shows the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so we will read those verses, and that's a, that's a really complicated issue in a lot of people's lives. Because most of our lives have been touched in this world by sexual brokenness, either because of our own choices or because of the choices of other people who have done horrific things to you in your life. And so Paul offers guidance to us in verse 18. He doesn't usually tell us things like this, but he does in this area when he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he reminds us why the body is so important again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Back in chapter 3, we did that little exercise where the, the you was plural, and we said y'all. And we remember that was a big, all of us are the temple of Christ. Paul now switches that to the, the singular you, individually, me as an individual, my body is a little bitty temple that make, we all come together and make a bigger one, but, but my body is an individual temple where the Spirit of God lives. And so I ought to live in and use this temple in a way that honors Him, that brings glory to Him. And Paul said, just reminds these Corinthians that the things you're doing, the things you're tolerating, the th your attitudes and your actions in this area are not honoring this temple. You're not living up to what you have been given. And he reminds us the great price that is paid for that temple to exist. It was the death of Jesus that bought our salvation. And so he calls us in that to see ourselves, to check our attitudes, to check our actions in this area of sexuality and what we think about it and what we do in this area and are we allowing the influence of the Holy Spirit to be felt and seen through our life and our decisions, our actions, even our thoughts in this area? And so the Spirit lives in us. We are not our own. We have been bought with a great price. And to think we are free to indulge is wrong. We are free to become. We are not free to indulge. And so 
Paul reminds them, whether it's the pettiness and their arguments that end up in courts that, in, that ruin the reputation of Christ, or whether it's their actions that are just showing that there's no Holy Spirit at work in, in your life because you're no different from anybody else. Both of those areas he brings and calls them to, um, he calls them to account. He calls them to think about their past, what they've been bought from, their future, where they're going, their present, what their witness to the community around them is. And so, our sexual squabbles and attacks on one another harm the reputation of Christ. Number two, our sexual attitudes and habits must reflect the influence of the Holy Spirit. And I think as we think, well, how do I apply this? What do I do with this? I think this third thing is what I would just put before us, because that's where Paul ends. And I think if you want to know, how do I do the the first 19 verses? I think if you take verse 20 and read it back through, and actually read the whole book, he's going to appeal to this idea later again. But he says, glorify God in your body. And so here's the third thing. Our starting point for all ethics, attitudes, and actions must be the glory of God. Our starting point for all ethics and attitudes and actions towards others, how I live with myself, how I think of myself, must be the glory of God. One author I was reading um, yesterday gave this helpful list of questions based on this chapter to think, okay, how do I live wisely out of this passage? Because all of us have different lives and different things um, that we face, but these questions are helpful based on this chapter. Number one, does this practice contribute to my own spiritual growth and maturity? Does this practice contribute to my own spiritual growth and maturity? Does this make me more a greater follower of Jesus if I do this? Or does it diminish me? Number two, does this practice contribute to the growth and maturity of fellow believers? If other people see me do that, does that cause them to grow and be encouraged? Or does it diminish and discourage them? Number three, does this practice further the gospel? Not everything can do that, but even the most minuscule things in your life can move the gospel forward um, if, if done with the right way and the right attitude. And number four, does this practice glorify God? Does this make God look good if I do this? Um, and so I thought that was a helpful list that takes all of that and think, okay, all these things, how I handle disputes and disagreements with anybody in my life, how I deal with this issue of sexuality in all of our lives, I think there's wisdom in those four questions. And so I'll finish with this. Um, I, this sat heavy on my head all week long. I was on vacation, but I was dreading this sermon just because it, it's heavy and it goes in so many different directions and it reaches into so many people's lives in so many different ways. And I get that. And so I just was prayerful about as we approach a passage like this, that certain traits will be true in our minds and our hearts as we think about this, as we process this, as we relate to each other with this. First of all, may there be humility. I really, as I read through 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, I think legalists and Pharisees love those two chapters because they enjoy pointing out the flaws of others and they enjoy finding clubs to beat other people up with because they're sinning. And it's always about other people's wrongs. And legalists and Pharisees come at these kinds of passages with pride and they have done great disservice to the church over the centuries. And so my hope and my prayer for us is that we read these passages with humility. Second is that we would come at this passage with surrendered hearts and wills. 
This is one of those places in Scripture. They're all that way in a way. But this is one of those places in Scripture where you very quickly find out who the Lord of your life is. Is Jesus really Lord in your life? Or are you the Lord and you just want Jesus to bless what you want and what you think? So much of what we read here doesn't sound right to our culture. It doesn't feel right. It's not what we're told. It's not what we're sung to about. It's not what the movies present to us. It's not the narrative that's told to us. And you find out quickly, is this story about me or is this story about Jesus and me following Jesus? And so you may read this and have some pushback and struggle and concern and feel confronted, and that's okay. But I pray that we would humbly come and have surrendered hearts and wills that simply just say, hey, Jesus, I know this doesn't necessarily fit with so many things I hear, but I want to do your will, not my will. And so help me to do that. May we come with surrendered hearts and wills. And may we come with compassion, number three. May there be compassion. These verses touch people's lives in some of the most personal and deep ways. They can stir up a lot of struggle and even trauma in the lives of people. And so when we read them, when we think about them, when we apply them, may it be done with, I listened to a thing this week that looked at this whole chapter always going back to the heart of Jesus and told stories of Jesus interacting with people who were in these kind of situations. And he was always firm, he was always clear, but he was always compassionate. And may we relate maybe to ourselves because we can beat ourselves up with shame and guilt over some of these things or maybe relate to other people with compassion and may it be one of those things like Jesus looked at the multitudes and saw that they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd and he just, his heart went out to them. There was compassion behind that even as he walked obediently with God. And so, as we read a passage like this, may humility and surrenderedness and compassion create a kingdom focus in our life that plays itself out. We want the reputation of Jesus Christ to be the best it can be. And how we handle things determines much of that for the outside watching world. We want our lives to show the influence of the Holy Spirit within us. So may we come humbly and submissive to his will, and we want the glory of God the Father to be broadcast through our lives. And that's my prayer for us today, that the Son and the Spirit and the Father would be honored through our lives. Whatever area, whatever struggle, wherever we may find ourselves in these things, may that be done to glorify the Lord. Let's pray together, please. Father, we come today asking that you would help us to just come humbly and surrendered and go all the compassion we can find today. Lord, free us from maybe a legalistic or a uh, Pharisaic attitude that likes to point out the sins of other people, but we rarely wrestle with our own sin. May this passage first and foremost be a mirror that we look at our own selves through or in. And may we be quick to repent, to own our own sin, to be the first to fall to our knees and say, God, we have not always done this well.
change us. And so, Father, may a broken and humble spirit fill us so that this passage might do a good work in our life. Sometimes the work of the Spirit in our life is, is challenging, it's hard, and it confronts us over things that go deep within us. Father, may we always find your loving encouragement, your loving call, the goodness of the gospel. And so may Jesus' reputation grow because a humble group of people long to make it so. And Lord, may the Spirit's influence be seen in our life as we as we conduct ourselves and we think of ourselves and we respond to other people under his leadership. And Father, may you be glorified through our life. You've given us a picture today of what that might look like. And so may we strive to make that our number one goal, that you would be glorified through our lives. Our, evil, our efforts may seem feeble. The way may be hard. But Father, as we humbly come today, we just ask that you would help us um, to be a God-honoring people in all that we do. And we love you. We thank you for the price that was paid to win our souls. It was never our goodness. It was never because we deserved it. It was because a gracious and kind Savior came and died on the cross to purchase us. And so may the love that fills our hearts at that thought May it lead us to walk more fully in your ways. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name.